0: EM Guidewire, hard-hitting emergency medicine from Carolina's Medical Center. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sean Fox, and thank you for joining us on EM Guidewire once again. When I look at my calendar today, it says the month of June, which means we're in that magical period of time where our third years are getting ready to graduate any day now, and we're also filled with energy and enthusiasm for welcoming our new set of interns, which interestingly, reminds me that today's episode is going to be an intern nugget. Now, Drs. Durber and Folk really will only be interns for another couple days, and before they go on to becoming stellar second years, they did want to impart a little bit more wisdom. They're going to cover some of the things that they learned at the most recent SAM conference that they all went to. So, without further ado, a hearty thank you to Drs. Durber and Folk for continuing to educate us throughout this year. I really look forward to seeing what they're going to do in the coming year. Take it away, ladies.
1: This is Sophia Durba, PGY1. And this is Destiny Folk, PGY1. This episode of Intern Nuggets is brought to you by crawfish, beignets, gumbo, jambalaya, gators, and jazz music. Dr. Durba, it sounds like our trip to the SAEM conference in New Orleans made quite the impression on you. It sure did, Dr. Folk. And besides eating a lot of really good food... You and I learned a lot of great clinical and professional knowledge at SAEM this year.
2: In this episode of Intern Nuggets, we're going to share some quick takeaways
1: with you from a few of our favorite sessions at SAEM. For the first session, imagine this patient scenario. A 72-year-old woman with a history of mild dementia not on blood thinners is brought in by EMS after her family, who hasn't seen her in two years, visited her and found her sitting on the floor by her couch near the base of a set of five stairs, confused and only oriented to self opening eyes to voice, but following commands, giving her a GCS of 13. She has a small abrasion on her left forearm that might be old, and there otherwise isn't any evidence of trauma. But they're worried that she might have tripped, fallen, and hit her head, and that's why she's altered.
2: This sounds like a patient who's getting some labs, maybe a urinalysis, and probably a head CT. Her age being over 65 and possibly a dangerous mechanism if she fell down the stairs are both criteria from the Canadian CT head injury rule that would push me to consider
1: CT. Right. She's not on blood thinners, but she's older, and you don't really know her baseline GCS, and she might have fallen. Now, say we establish that her baseline GCS is 14 in the setting of dementia, and she comes in three more times over the next two months with a similar presentation. Do you get a head CT each of those times, too? If I don't have a clear other source of her altered mental status, I find that we tend to scan these patients more often than not. What if I told you that there's a test that takes 15 minutes to run with a plasma sample for two markers of mild traumatic brain injury that has a 97.6% sensitivity for a brain injury visualized on CT? So, kind of like a D-dimer, but for mild TBIs. Exactly. There's a newly FDA-approved plasma test that tests for two markers of mild TBI that can be positive as soon as 20 minutes after injury, while the other marker stays positive for about 72 hours after injury. So, if either marker is positive, just like a positive D-dimer, it would prompt you to get a head CT. But both being negative is reassuring against mild TBI. The specificity is around 36%, but that's around the same specificity as the decision-making rules like the Canadian Head Injury Decision Rule. This test is currently only available in a few hospitals, but it sounds like it has potential. It would be useful
2: to have a fast and easy rule-out test for mild TBI in patients with a GCS of 13 to 15 who are not on blood thinners with a reassuring neuro exam, but with one of those subjective parts of the decision-making rules like dangerous mechanism.
1: Next up, we attended a great session about the use of ultrasound pre-intubation. I had previously heard of using ultrasound to verify placement of the ET tube post-intubation, You can see reverberation artifacts in the trachea and a non-visualized esophagus in a successful tracheal intubation versus an open trachea with an esophagus just to the left of it, the patient's left that is, with reverberation artifacts in it in an esophageal intubation. What ultrasound can also do is allow you to both visualize
2: neck anatomy to predict a difficult intubation and to assess hemodynamic status to anticipate some cases of peri-intubation hemodynamic compromise. Looking at a transverse cross-section of your patient's neck you can measure the neck thickness by measuring from skin to vocal cords or hyoid bone, with thickness greater than 2.8 centimeters predicting difficult intubation, and measuring skin to epiglottis with thickness greater than 2.3 centimeters predicting a difficult intubation. You can also look in a sagittal view to find the cricothyroid membrane
1: and mark it in a difficult airway that may progress to cricothyrotomy. Us explaining what these views look like to you in an audio format is probably less than helpful, so we'd recommend looking up the images you're trying to visualize before using these techniques in your ED. The other way ultrasound can be helpful pre-intubation is by allowing you to look for right ventricular dilation, a positive D sign in your parasternal short view, or poor RV contraction, which could indicate right-sided heart failure. We care about this because a patient with RV failure is the patient who's not going to respond to typical therapeutic measures for hemodynamic instability and is the classic patient who codes right after being intubated. If you identify a dilated right ventricle with a positive D-sign or
2: poor RV contractility, avoid or delay intubation if possible with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation so that the patient can continue initiating their own breaths to keep pulmonary pressures down. If they get profoundly hypotensive with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation... This gives you a clue as to how they'll respond to the increased pressure from intubation, and it is an intervention you can more easily stop. Avoid excess PEEP or airway pressures if you do have to intubate them.
1: Although a fluid bolus is usually a reasonable first step for a hypotensive patient, avoid this in patients with RV failure pre-intubation or at least give smaller, more cautious fluid boluses. Instead, consider trying vasopressors over fluids in the hypotensive patient. Norepinephrine is an okay choice, but it can increase your pulmonary vascular resistance, so vasopressin can be a better option in these patients. In a patient with known pulmonary hypotension that's causing acute RV failure, or in patients with a pulmonary embolism, nitric oxide can also be used to dilate pulmonary vasculature to decrease pulmonary resistance. That all goes to show that point-of-care ultrasound in a critically ill
2: patient can not only add to your clinical picture and help identify why the patient is decompensating, but it can also help you anticipate further complications with interventions you choose to do and can be helpful in multiple ways peri-intubation. The last SAEM session we wanted
1: to share with you was a session with some helpful musculoskeletal takeaways. First up, fascia iliaca blocks. One study showed that there's a decrease in both pre-operative opioid use and improved postoperative pain control in patients with hip fractures who get a fascia iliaca block. This isn't surprising, but it's helpful to have a study to back you up and make you more confident that you're doing the right thing for your patient and not just something that seems like it'll help, because most procedures aren't without complications.
2: Dr. Durba, I remember our first intern Nuggets episode about pain control in which you said to me that you needed to learn your nerve blocks.
1: How's that going? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for <laughs> reminding me, Dr. Folk. <laughs> I'm actually just starting my ultrasound month and can definitely use more practice and guidance, but I've done a few fascia iliaca blocks with our incredible ultrasound faculty here at CMC, and it really makes a huge difference. I had one patient who started vomiting from all the Dilaudid I gave her, and her pain still wasn't very well controlled. A fascia iliaca block provided her with almost complete relief, and she needed minimal further pain medication while waiting for her surgery. That's awesome. I'm
2: glad you're integrating multimodal pain control into your patient care. Our next topic is also pain control related, specifically pain control and ankle sprains. We often tell parents to schedule NSAIDs to provide adequate pain control for a pediatric patient, but is scheduling
1: NSAIDs really necessary, or can parents let kids tell them when they need more medication? One study found no difference in pain scores in pediatric patients with ankle sprains given scheduled versus as-needed NSAIDs. This doesn't mean this crosses over into other pediatric injuries, but at least for ankle sprains, you can pass both of these options along to families and let them decide what works best for them, potentially limiting unnecessary doses of medication.
2: Last but certainly not least, this session covered important differences of patient understanding of musculoskeletal and orthopedic terminology. Dr. Derba, imagine you have a patient with wrist pain after a fuchs injury. You get x-rays which show a distal radius fracture.
1: Ah, fuchs injury. Classic. <laughs> I'm just relieved it's fractured and not broken. I was worried it might be broken. Thanks for the good news, Dr. Folk. (laughs) Very funny, Dr. Durba.
2: This study found that using simple terminology with patients is essential when giving verbal and written discharge
1: instructions. At least half of patients in the study believe there to be a difference between terms like a bone being fractured versus broken, or when referring to tendons, a tendon being ruptured versus torn.
2: While these are common terms we use in our own documentation, using the more clearly understood term like a broken bone or a torn tendon is important to ensure your patient understands what diagnosis they have. It's also fine to use both terms as long as you clarify that they mean the same thing. Now, let's wrap things up with a quick recap.
1: Look out for the newly FDA-approved test that combines two markers of brain injury to aid you in the diagnosis of mild TBI and potentially help avoid unnecessary head CTs when evaluating these patients. Remember your ultrasound as a useful tool in evaluating patients' pre-intubation to predict difficult intubations, find landmarks for a surgical airway, and assess hemodynamic status to help guide your resuscitation and anticipate hemodynamic response to the increase in intrathoracic pressure that comes with intubation. We can also lean on ultrasound to help us with pain control. Don't forget
2: about ultrasound-guided local blocks for injuries like the fascia iliaca block that can be used for hip fractures, only after thoroughly assessing neurovascular function and ensuring your orthopedic colleagues have done the same, of course. That's all we've got for you today, and with this episode, that wraps up this year's episodes of Intern Nuggets. But don't worry, as Dr. Durba and I transition into our PGY2 year, we'll be passing off the torch to the next class of interns this July.
1: So you'll continue to get clinical pearls from shifts and tips on surviving intern year on this special segment of EM Guidewire. Thanks for tuning in to our last episode of Intern Nuggets here at the J. Lee Garvey Studio at Carolina's Medical Center. Oh, oh <laughs> we did it! <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Dr. Durba. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Polk.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go. Be awesome today. you out.
1: We're doing it. The last intern nuggets episode for me and Dr. Folk. Whoa. That's crazy. That's crazy. No, I thought you said it normal I think you said it normal, but I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce things <laughs> as we learned last episode. So I'm not the right person to ask. Okay, Idereaf says map is like the weirdest word. <laughs> Did you second guess yourself after you said it correctly? I think I said it, but maybe. <laughs> But it all. <laughs> Your laugh is so adorable. <laughs> <I> Thanks. <so. laughs> we're all grown up. I mean, like we've always been all grown up. I guess we're adults. <laughs> we've been adults for a while, but. <laughs>